Welcome to episode 136 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. How are you? I'm doing great. This is a little weird, but happy Mother's Day. A happy Mother's Day to you as well. Yeah. Is it is it cool to say happy Mother's Day to another man who also doesn't have children? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's our style. Just two dudes sitting in rooms alone, <laughs> separated from each other. No kids. Wishing one another happy Mother's, happy brother, Day. Mother's Day. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's Mother's Day. I think that may or may not be all that we're going to say about it, but uh, happy Mother's Day to all the mothers who listen to our show. We hope you had an excellent celebration of the fact that you created children. Yeah. And I'm particularly thankful to my mother for creating me. The way that I said that sounded super sarcastic and it wasn't intended to be. <laughs> Seriously, happy Mother's Day to any mothers that listen to our show. <laughs> Amen. Yeah. So why don't we get into a little bit of affirmations and denials? Why don't you uh, kick us off? So this week, I'm affirming with a relatively new Bible app that's called Literal Word. Have you seen this already? I have not. So this is a brand new Bible app that's an NASB version. And it's really a super clean, wonderfully slick application. It's almost so good that it shouldn't be free, but it's available for like Android, iOS. There's a web version of it. Here's what I like about this thing. First, interface is really slick. It's just very focused. There's no distraction. But what I love about this is it's a fully integrated version of the NASB. So there's this amazing word search function where you can, it'll pull up every word. It'll underline all the words that are searchable for you. By selecting a word, not only will you get the definition of it, either the Hebrew or the Greek, but what I think is really adds a lot of value because I, I love when somebody takes data and makes it information and makes it visual and easy to understand. So what this app does that's remarkably exciting is when you click on a word, like say you, you just click on the word truth. What you're going to get is this nice little graph. It's actually a horizontal bar graph that shows you all the uses of that word across the scriptures. So for instance, I might organize it by the Pentateuch, history, wisdom, and poetry, like major prophets. You'll get all that. And then here's what's awesome. You'll get all the instances across those particular genres. And then you can drill down. So you can click on that and say there's like 29 uses of the word truth in the Gospels and Acts. You can click on that. And then you get yet another lesser bar chart that shows between all the gospels where it's used. You can click on that further and then see all the, the exact uses in that particular passage. So it's a really great way to get some sense of like where words are used, how they're used, where they're used. It's such a nice, easy app. So I highly recommend it. It's called Literal Word. And you can find it just by going to any place where you download stuff. But it's pretty slick. I'm an ESV guy myself, I would say the majority of the time. But I'm not going to lie. I do like a little NASB here and there because, you know, you get with the NASB, as you know, like you get a little bit of different sensibility about both a more literal translation. But also I, I do appreciate the fact that, for instance, like any kind of time the scripture is quoting itself or any anybody in the scripture is quoting from the scripture, you get that kind of all is like like small caps. Yeah. So everything kind of jumps out at you a little bit more. And I always appreciate that. So it's definitely worth checking out. Yeah, I'm a I'm a big fan of the NASB, and it's funny because it seems like in the last like I don't know like six months, it's like somebody came on staff that's like a millennial, because it's like all of a sudden they were like, oh, oh, we should like we should have a Facebook page, well, we should right. probably like make an app, 
and some guy in the corner is like, right. what's a nap? <laughs> I didn't hear you. Wow, just NASB stereotypes yeah. abounding. <laughs> yeah, but it really they really have stepped up their game. Um, this goes back to like the preacher's Bible that John MacArthur was putting out, um, which I know we made a little bit of fun of, but the, the NASB... I know for a fact that there are some people who are involved in the NASB that are really kind of trying to revitalize and rejuvenate it a little bit because it's a translation, a translation that's really valuable because it is, um, it is more literal even than the ESV, um, which makes it a little bit difficult to read, but it can be really valuable for people who are wanting to study the word more exegetically, but haven't uh, been able to, for whatever reason, um, to do language studies. So you can get a lot closer to sort of studying the language in its original form if you use something like the NASB. But of course, you sacrifice readability for that. So every translation has its purpose. But it's nice to see that they're getting a little bit of new life and that their marketing is kind of kicking it up a little bit. Because I'm finding that a lot of people that I talk to actually don't even know what the NASB is. They just haven't ever heard of the translation. Yeah, it's coming through a bit of a resurgence, isn't it? In terms of like more printed volumes. And I think this app is in the right direction because this is a great way to kind of get an introduction to proper word study through just a really easy interface. So people should go check it out. It's definitely worth it. I, when I saw it, I was like, oh, surely, surely this must cost money because I was like, this is really nice. And then I was like, oh wait, what an age we live in. Yeah. Yeah, that this really, is just available really to us. Yeah, it's fantastic. So what are you affirming this week? I'm affirming a new book uh, that was published by Refor- uh, Reformation Heritage Books. It's part of their translation work. So Reformation Heritage Books publishes a bunch of really great um, composition books that they've written, that various authors have written. But they're also very active in partnership with the Dutch Reformation uh, Society or Dutch Translation Society. And so they they translate these old Dutch sort of Second Reformation theologians that were really, really foundational for people like Jonathan Edwards, um, sort of that era of Puritanism, but haven't been hadn't been translated into English. So people like you and me don't have access to it. So this right. first volume is called Theoretical Practical Theology, and this is the prolegomena volume. Um, and it's written by Petrus van Maastricht. Um, and it's just it's excellent. It's just super good. This was actually the book. It's funny because you read like their little blurbs. Let me read this blurb to you. It says, as to the book you speak of, Maastricht is sometimes in one volume, a very large, thick quarto, sometimes in two quarto volumes. I believe it could not be had new under eight or 10 pounds. Turretin is in three volumes in quarto and would probably be about the same price. They are both excellent. Turretin is on polemical divinity and on the five points and all other controversial points is much larger than these match and is better than the one you desire only to be thoroughly versed in controversies, but take Maastricht for divinity in general doctrine, practice and controversy, or as a universal system of divinity. It is much better than Turretin or any other book in the world, except the Bible, in my opinion. Jonathan Edwards. <laughs> so that's a heck of a, a heck of a media blurb. But Jonathan Edwards literally said that this is the book, best book that's ever been written besides the Bible. Um, and he says it's better than Turretin. I don't know how much access Jonathan Edwards actually had to Calvin's Institutes, but I would actually say that I'm, I think that this is a better treatment in general than even the Institutes is. So it's broken up really well. He's got uh, sort of a doctrine section, a polemic section, and then a practical section. So he talks about like what the doctrine is, how to defend it, and then how it actually applies to your life. And it's just really, really excellent. And it's 
it's easy to read. Like I'm going through it very quickly, which is not typical with systematic theology. So volume one is out. I just got the notice the other day that volume two is on pre-order now. So I'm going to be pre-ordering that. Um, it's not super expensive. Um, you can still get it for a discount if you go to Reformation Heritage Books too. It's super good. Jonathan Edwards is so amazingly meticulous and precise, isn't he? Yeah. He even tell. well, I mean, I'm sure this was like a response to a letter that a guy wrote and was like, what's the best book for me to buy? Which is like Still. a totally typical theology question that we get all the time. But I love right. that he's like, eh, you could get it for like eight or 10 pounds. <laughs> to a 10, you could probably get for about the same price. Like, I just love the, just the like mundane nature of his comments. It's just exactly. perfect. Exactly. It's so matter of fact, like it's also precise in him describing the, the theology that's underpinning in those books. But I love as well that he's like, let me just quote a price for you real quick. So you yeah. can have an expectation of what's going to cost you. Yep, exactly. Yeah. I have no idea what eight to 10 pounds would be like in his day in terms of like modern day value. Man, that's a good question. I have no idea. It, it strikes me as a little bit expensive, actually. It wouldn't surprise I mean, books were expensive. They yeah, were more it's... expensive proportionally than they are today. Right. Yeah. So good on him. I love that. I love that. That's like just normal chill correspondence yeah. between those dudes. Like we just don't write that way. What, what would like the equivalent text be right now? Like it's probably like eleven ninety nine on Kindle. Yeah. Something if you yeah, I mean, it's awesome. It'd be like if I said like, well, you could buy, you could buy Horton's Christian theology or you could buy Michael Bird's evangelical theology. They're about the same size. Costs about the same amount of money. Yeah. Michael Horton it's, is it's way pretty better solid. Though. It's pretty solid. It is. Yeah. It's the, it's the best book next to the Bible. Yeah. Well, it's funny too, because in some of these letters, when they're talking about these, like you hear it, he's talking about like the size of the book. Cause you have to think like when these guys are traveling to like do pulpit supply or to like, they have to bring these books with them everywhere. So right. like the size of the book is a real consideration for them. I think Jonathan Edwards would love the Kindle. I'm just gonna throw that out there. Oh yeah, for sure. I think he'd be down with that. Yeah. Hard. Yeah. Let's do some denials. What do you got? So I want to deny against expensive cell phone plans. This is something I just don't understand these days, speaking of expense and cost. I have a relatively cheap cell phone plan, and yet I'm still finding yet cheaper plans. I just don't understand why anybody would spend a lot of money on their cell phone. I mean, I could be wrong, but I'm just denying against, maybe it's a better way to say this is like the overcharging or so it seems yeah. of cell phone coverage. That's just my opinion. Yeah, I think one of the things that's hard is we don't, like data seems so like ethereal and ubiquitous. It's hard to understand, like, how can they charge me more for a more like more amount of data? Like, it doesn't seem like it would cost them anything to give me more data. And in a certain sense, like there isn't like a physical cost, like a real cost for them to give you five gigabytes versus six gigabytes. But they somehow are able to monetize and understand like price per megabyte in relation to like server maintenance and electricity and all this stuff. But I right. think every, it always feels like you're getting ripped off with your data fees <laughs> because you can't like understand how is it possible that six megabytes actually cost them more than five megabytes. And I think that's the feeling. It's that sense that I'm actually getting ripped off. Not that like this is good value or even that I enjoy paying for this, but it's just kind of like, man, yeah. why is this so expensive? So yeah, I'm on this kick right now where I'm trying to find like the absolute lowest priced cell phone plan that also, of course, suits my needs and has like coverage. But that's what I'm also discovering is that I just don't use as much data as I think I use. Yeah. So I don't know if that's a normal experience or not, because nowadays, you know, being having access to like Wi-Fi, for instance, is also pretty ubiquitous. So I'm just like trying to stick it to the man at this point. Like now I'm just on a mission. <laughs> 
to get like a really cheap cell phone plan that of course, again, is practical and actually is, it works. But I think it's just, I'm just impressed with like how, if you go a little bit off the beaten path that you can, because here's the, okay, here we go. Now we're into it. Here's the other thing that I've discovered is that when you look at like kind of the, so to speak, like off branded cell phone plans, they're all, all, or a lot of them, they're using the same towers and service anyway. So like they're using like these off brand guys are like using AT&T or Sprint or T-Mobile or whatever, but you're just not paying those prices from those providers, but the coverage is the same. So it's kind of sneaky. But I'm down with those guys that are like, listen, like I almost feel like it's like you have to go to like the proverbial like secret door or like cell phone speakeasy. You know what I mean? And like you have to just find these places. You knock on the door and they're like, what's the password? And you're like clam chowder. And they're like (laughs) Manhattan or New England. And you're like Manhattan. And they let you in and get the pricing. And they're like, yeah, this is the same pricing as. Yeah. Or this is the same service as everybody else. But we can just give you a better price. So Yeah. What it is, the difference is and this for for the places that you frequent, it doesn't make a difference. But the difference is so I have an AT&T plan. And AT&T has contracts with Sprint, Verizon, et cetera, where I can piggyback on their towers in certain senses when I'm in areas that AT&T doesn't have coverage. Well, if you go on like you're on Cricket Wireless, I think, right? Or you were. If you're on Cricket Wireless, well, you're contracted. They contract with AT&T to use AT&T's towers. But if you go somewhere where AT&T is contracted to use Sprint's towers, you're not going to get reception there because you're not on an AT&T tower and Cricket is not contracted to use Sprint. So in certain parts of the country, it actually makes a big difference. So here's the crazy thing, though. You ready for this? Yes. Cricket is owned by AT&T. Yeah, I know. So you actually get, yeah, you actually get all that stuff. Anyway. Do you? Okay, so Cricket's the outlier then. Yeah, it's it's again it's strange, and I know I know that like they actually acquired them later on in life, but yeah. that's what just makes this like so weird. So you're right, I like what you said. It just always feels like you're getting ripped off. Probably you're not in some respects, but it just always feels like yeah. it. So I'm denying against that feeling. I'm trying to get you know some greater sense of purpose and happiness with my cell phone. <laughs> well, that's my plan. I'm denying, uh, well, just in general, I'm denying just stupid, silly, liberal logic and <laughs> behavior. Wow. So That's a huge denial. A lot of times I make fun of Jesse because he's not on Facebook and he's kind of a social media Luddite. But one place that, Jesse, that you're actually very active is on Twitter. So True. have you heard about this Alyssa Milano Twitter thing yes, going on? I, I did okay. see this. First of all. Why? When? When did it happen that uh, like has been comedians or like has been sitcom actors from like twenty years ago were culturally relevant voices in our world? Like I don't understand why anybody cares what like more than the average person, right? I mean, I say this right. as like some Yahoo sitting in his office in New Hampshire recording a podcast for a couple hundred people to listen to. But like, why, why does anybody care what Alyssa Milano has to say? But secondly, it's funny because, so I'm going to read the tweet. She says, and obviously she's super liberal. She's super pro-abortion. She says, quote, our reproductive rights are being erased until women can legally control our own bodies. We just cannot risk pregnancy. Join me by not having (laughs) sex until we get bodily autonomy back. I'm calling for a hashtag sex strike. Pass it on. And it's funny because the conservative response to this has been like, this is awesome. Great. And it's like, oh, you're telling me that you're not going to have sex uh, outside of marriage just for fun. Great. Like, that's excellent. We're very happy about that. So I just think it's funny because like 
the the liberal mindset has no this is sort of like a presuppositional apologetics thing like the liberal right. mindset has no grounding for rationality right if everything is rooted in your own like your own perception of the world like this doesn't make any sense because the the kind of people predominantly who are fighting against abortion are also people that think that uh, indiscriminate promiscuous sex is a bad thing. So right. like, and, and who think that like sex should happen in the context of marriage. Now, granted, there are some pro-life people who are not conservative in that sense. And there are some people who are kind of sexually conservative in terms of their personal morals that are not, uh, not uh, anti-abortion. But by and large, the people that she is, quote unquote, punishing with this are other liberal men who are on her side already. So it's like, it's just funny because the logic just doesn't work. And it's like, we're totally happy with you doing this, Miss Milano. You you go ahead (laughs) and you have your sex strike and we will laugh at you for how stupid this is. I did think this was hilarious because it's one of those things where the logic gets so turned on its head that it comes all the way back around. So when yeah. I saw that she had hashtagged it as sex strike, which is just a weird combination of words to begin yeah. with. My first thought was by that, do you mean abstinence? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, and then <laughs> because, I saw someone else yes. that was like, was like, yeah, no one should tell a, a pro woman what to do with her body, except other liberal women who <laughs> want to tell you what to do with your body. Right. That's exactly, exactly yeah. what I was thinking, especially in areas of sexuality. I find yeah. the liberal mind to be totally confused. So for like real quick, several years ago, almost a decade ago now, I often volunteered for a program that would go into high schools in our area and would teach uh, abstinence sex education. And it was amazing to me, even of course, at a young age, just how liberal the mindset was there. And so often Somebody, usually a dude, of course, to be honest with you, to be totally pejorative, a dude would would push back and say, well, I really love my girlfriend. So you're telling me I can't have sex. How can I show my girlfriend that I love her? And my response was usually just like, I would say something like, well, do you love your mom? <laughs> I mean, like, be, it, because it's it's just ridiculous, like to use this yeah. kind of language. So I'm, I'm with you, like to say, I would say when I saw that that tweet, the first thing I thought was like, this is abstinence. It's funny you don't use that word. And yeah, like more power to you. Yeah. Second thing I thought was like cut to every liberal dude saying, <laughs> hey, what did we hey, do? Yeah, what? That's not fair. <laughs> and and the, so, this this is okay. So to get a little bit serious, um, there's this thing going around called the pro-life challenge. You're not on Facebook, so you probably haven't seen this. But basically, it's um, it's like a do you remember like the ice bucket challenge? Yes. It's like that, only it's a pro-life challenge. So it's like somebody will do a little like monologue uh, on like a a Facebook video about like why they're pro-life and then it'll nominate a couple people. So I guess we can consider this my pro-life challenge. I was nominated by Carrie Gephardt uh, from the Five for Fruit uh, podcast, co-member of the Society for Foreign Podcasters. And the fact is like, if you wanted to ask me why I'm pro-life, there's obviously the answer like, well, the Bible teaches that murdering babies is not a good thing. So I'm pro-life because the Bible says not to do that. Um, but I'm also pro-life because I care about women, right? And abortion right. historically has been used as a tool to oppress uh, women and to allow men to take advantage of them without consequences. Because as much as um, as much as the liberals want to paint this picture that uh, a woman becomes pregnant and then the man just disappears, 
matters. Um, even in cases where that man disappears, there's still a spiritual and a moral obligation that that man has, and that will affect his life for the rest of his life because there's always that thought in the back of his mind. And I know, I know men who have impregnated women and then taken off, and they will tell you um, that they always remember that they have a child out there somewhere. And there's always this thought in the back of their head. And I think that this is the image of God, that they're not caring for their son or daughter the way they're supposed to. And there's also this fear that that, that kid could show up at any time. And all of a sudden there's this responsibility in my face that I have. And so, so abortion has been used by men predominantly to suppress and oppress women in order to be able to have sex with them and then get out of the consequences. And the, the fact of the matter is that a woman will always face the consequences of abortion for the rest of her life. Um, she will always remember that there's a child that's not with her. And so if you ask me why I'm pro-life, it's because I'm pro-woman. Um, and that's the thing that the liberal logic just misses. So I'm right. not going to nominate anybody for the pro-life challenge right now, but it's, it's kind of going around. It's actually kind of a cool phenomenon that's happening. Interesting. I had no idea. Yeah, it's cool. There's lots of really great videos out there. And it's cool because everybody kind of has their own little take on it. But all of the ones that I've seen are really rooted in biblical thought and biblical language. Um, and the scripture is radically clear that that a man and a woman in the context of marriage should be having children. But if you right. have children outside of the context of marriage, um, the option is not to get rid of that child. And so in our context, that takes the form of abortion. But in the early church, uh, it was predominantly in the form of exposure, which was just sort of a form of post-birth abortion, which uh, kind of disgustingly sounds like it's coming back around. Um, and the church in the first century was the single largest voice against that. Um, they were known, unfortunately, they were known as cannibals because people thought they were taking the babies and eating them because of the language around the Lord's Supper. But what happened is in Roman cities, people would put their babies out for exposure and then the baby would be gone. And what it was is the Christians were going around at night picking up these, these babies before they died, taking them home and raising them. So the Bible is really clear. Church history is really clear. Um, it is never acceptable to take the life of an innocent person, um, innocent horizontally, not innocent vertically. Um, and uh, preborn babies are certainly no different than that. This is one of those places where, because God is our creator, even outside, like you said, of the biblical arguments, we can just say God knows best. All the reasons yep. you just gave, gave explained to us and emphasize mm -hmm. that when God says no or don't behave this way, what he's really saying is don't hurt yourself. Yeah. And so he just knows best. No matter what we want to try to do, what, whatever arguments we want to try to hide behind, whatever rights we want to assert, whatever liberties we say are at, at risk here, what it matters at the end of the day is that God knows us best and he says no. Yep. Yep. So Jesse, before we get into our topic for the night, I would just like to ask our listeners to uh, share this episode or share the atonement series. Um, we really want to grow our audience, not because we want to grow it for like the sake of numbers. We don't have sponsorships. You're not going to hear like, well, you might hear at some point, but you're not going to hear Harry's, you know, razors advertisements or anything on our show in the near future. Um, but we want to grow the show because we want to grow this community that's built around the show. Um, we want to hear a diverse set of Christian voices. Um, we want to have people call us and ask us questions. We want people who aren't reformed to call us and uh, provoke us to answer their questions. Um, so we really want to have people show, uh, share our show far and wide. Maybe someone should share this show with Alyssa Milano, right? 
Or maybe somebody right. wants to try to find uh, another person we've referenced. Well, we had that really long interaction uh, with Derek Webb when we had the show about apostasy that I actually think was a positive experience for almost everybody involved, even the people who are pressing against us on Twitter. So right. we really want uh, the word to go out because ultimately this show is about the proclamation of the gospel. And there's never a wrong venue to do that. And we'll hope people will share this whole series that we've been doing on the atonement, because really you and I have been having this really nice, protracted, deep, rich conversation about all these different theories of the atonement, because we think it's really important to take time to unpack this, not to, there's not no wrong time to talk about. It. There's no wrong yeah. amount of time to speak about it, but yep. we really wanted to devote a lot of resources to unpacking it as best we could. And that's what we're going to continue doing tonight. Yeah, absolutely. So Jesse, why don't you intro our topic tonight? This is so actually a theory of the atonement that I haven't heard much about. Yeah. So, and that's what I like about this one, because this might be a little bit regional in a sense, because we're going off the beaten path a little bit. And we're going to talk about the covenantal theory of the atonement, which is kind of like the, the, I would say like undervalued step cousin of some of the other theories that we've spoken about, but it often gets a lot of attention because we're not talking about kind of covenant theology as you and I might normally think of, but something that's a little bit more specific and fine-tuned. And is, I would say, particularly relevant to the Anabaptist tradition, but it's really interesting and it takes kind of a different look at how justice is present in the death of Christ. And the whole heart of the argument is basically that the Gospels, when you read them through the lens of a covenantal relationship between God and God's people— suggests that Jesus' passion was neither substitutionary nor exemplary, but it was primarily mediatorial. And so Jesus, we have him as this really great mediator or a promissory covenant that existed for all time between humankind and God, going back to the Pactum Salutis, as we talked about before. And this covenant wasn't fulfilled by law, of course, but it was by the gracious fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham before the law was given. So the covenantal theory of atonement really emphasizes a grace-based justice rather than this law-based punitive justice, which is present, at least in some respect, in some of the other things we've talked about. And I want to kind of come back to that. But before we do, I think like the, the important thing about this particular theory of the atonement is to understand that basically it's emphasizing that the atonement is not explained by satisfaction of divine wrath. It's not explained by the power of divine example or by the Christus Victor motif, all those things we talked about. But the emphasis, the meaning of the atonement is found in the covenant actions of God, where all the conditions of God's promissory covenant to all people of the earth are fulfilled. So you can see how it's like a little bit off like the normal beaten path. We're talking about how justice comes into play in Christ's death and what that justice is actually covering. What is the center of it? Yeah. And I mean, I, I will acknowledge like, this is not a theory that I have studied or read anything about. And it's, it's not, it's not a theory that you're going to read about in, you know, like a systematic theology book is going to like cover all the main theories, right? They they go through, there's usually six or seven main theories that they cover. And these other kinds of offshoot theories are usually seen as like a subspecies of one of those. And and from the little amount of research I've been able to do with this one, it's hard because it 
it sort of feels a little bit like a subspecies of the governmental theory of the atonement, which right. we talked about yes. last week. But it's also right. not really the same because the governmental theory is about divine justice. And although we would disagree with the fact that it actually accomplishes its goal, it's about divine justice being satisfied by someone being punished for the sin of humanity. But this theory really is not about that. And, and, and from what I've seen, it's really more like justice is satisfied because God is faithful to what he said he was going to do. Yes, and, exactly. and our sin and redeeming us from that sin is almost an ancillary point. It's almost like they don't think redemption really needs to happen in a strict sense. It's more like as long as God fulfills his promise that he just takes care of whatever needs to happen behind the scenes. Um, it's almost like if, uh, if I, you know, if I said to my wife, um, I promise you that I'm going to take you to Disney world for our anniversary this year. Um, and, and then somewhere along the line, you know, she, this is ridiculous. Cause she's like the most frugal person I know. She racked up a bunch of credit card debt, Right. And I say, well, in order for justice to be satisfied, I have to take her to Disney World. And so in order for that to to happen, I need to work a bunch of overtime in order to pay down that credit card debt so we can then go to Disney World. Whereas the the um, you may look at that as almost like a penal substitution model, but that's not really what's happening. Right. In, in a strict sense, what would be just would be for her to work the overtime and for her to pay down the debt and for that then to enable it to happen. And so we might have some sort of penal substitution where I instead do it. But but instead, I'm just taking care of the problem uh, without any sort of subjective or objective experience that she has. I'm just taking care of it so then I can fulfill my promise, which then satisfies the demands of justice. Right. That's a really good example. That, and that's why I wanted to bring it up is because I think oftentimes we speak about Christ's death. And then, of course, the word justice usually is embedded somewhere in that conversation. We think we know what we're saying. And this theory at least points out that we might not be on the same page with all kinds of people. And so you're right, because my understanding of it, even in talking to others who kind of subscribe to this particular theory or this rubric of thinking, is that the covenantal theory really of atonement purports that God's justice is based exactly on what you said, on God being true to what he promised in his gracious covenant to begin with. So if God is to be just, according to the theory, then he must be true to his commitment to help and to save your wretched, undeserving people. And so the argument, and this is where it gets fascinating, I think, is that this is kind of against, or what they would say is against Western theology, which insists that justice must somehow be related to what a person deserves. And they would argue that that's not necessarily what Jesus is saying through his ministry. And so in order to preserve this supposed justice of God, Western theology has had to resort to legal manipulation in the act of atonement in which God is forced to respect the principle of distributive justice. And that's what you were kind of talking about in your example. So there is, here's what we have is there's kind of two understandings of justice set up and they're mutually exclusive and opposed to each other. One is this idea that justice is based on punishment and one, this idea that justice is based on grace. And so most, almost all of the theories we've talked about so far are presuming or have impounded in them this idea that justice is based on punishment. And your example is really good because what you just exemplified basically was justice as distributive. That is like everybody gets what they deserve. And the argument here is, well, that is in opposition to mercy, the mercy that God has described to exhibit in the Bible. And inevitably, this kind of coming against this idea that all the other things we've talked about so far make God this just great big God who desires just to punish. He's vengeful and he's violent. And so if forgiveness is extended to mankind, it's only because the, the punishment fell on Jesus as this substitution. 
And we can see just God is kind of this, like we said before, kind of cosmic abuser. And so that's, that's hard to stomach a little bit because we look at Romans and we see this really firm understanding that there is this sense in which Jesus is punished. But there's this argument that that punishment is really an exemplification of, of grace. And so I would say those who are, are looking at this theory and trying to understand what the atonement means are saying, listen, Paul writes about the good news of justice, which bypasses the law altogether. And so it's a justice which is grounded in a promise given before the law. And so because of that, we need to understand that the death of Jesus is really the mercy of God exhibited through grace and not in this way where there's kind of being meted out this really harsh, violent punishment that's yeah. distributed of nature. Yeah. So that's what's really interesting because we're talking about, we're using the same language, but there are many that would say, no, this is, this is the way that Jesus speaks. This is the way the New Testament communicates what's happening in the death of Christ. And this is why you can see how this philosophy would be particularly relevant and important to those who are, have a pacifist bent yeah. or are nonviolent in nature because they, they need to be consistent in the fact that God is nonviolent. And so the death of Jesus on the cross is not an act of explicit punishment, but of implicit grace. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it bears saying this, um, this theology is sometimes called from my reading called new covenant atonement theory. And the idea is that God, um, God operated, uh, by means of law under the old covenant. And then in this new covenant, which Christ establishes, um, in the Lord's supper, that this new covenant has a different, a different arrangement. And so in that sense, it's kind of like the governmental theory and that God that sort of establishes this new economy, um, it bears saying that although there's some affinity, that this is not something that's actually prominent in my reading of new covenant theology. So right. you have, you have new covenant theology, which is, they're going to, they're going to bristle at this term, but it's, it's more or less a sort of covenantalized version of dispensationalism is what new covenant theology is. And their model is intentionally trying to sort of split the difference between uh, covenant theology like Westminster or 1689 covenant theology and um, dispensationalism proper. And so this this model that they're talking about, I think that it, it falls heavier on the dispensationalist side. There are similarities in that in this Anabaptist covenant uh, theology atonement model that a new covenant is established and that this new covenant is established, which is actually a fulfillment of Abraham's promise and sort of jumps over the Mosaic covenant, right? Exactly. That happens in new covenant theology as well. And also in certain forms of republicanism, but those two things are not the same. So we wouldn't look at someone like a Stephen Wellam or a Peter Gentry or a, like a Tom Schreiner um, or John Piper, or D.A. Carson, like there's a whole bunch of people that fall in this that are respected teachers. We wouldn't necessarily look at them and say, well, they hold to this new covenant atonement theory, right? D.A. Carson, Tom Schreiner, they are they are penal substitution people through and through. So it's right. important to delineate that. And what I think also bears saying is that as I've read about this and as we talk about it now, this is a theology that developed particularly by an oppressed people group. Right. The Anabaptists, as they were developing their theology, were being actively persecuted, not just by the Roman Catholics, but by the Lutherans and the Reformed as well. Probably even more 
in a lot of ways by the Reformed and the Lutherans than by the Roman Catholics. Right. And well, I'm I'm not I don't buy into the whole like oppressed people. The fact that you're being oppressed automatically gives you a particularly valuable voice. I don't buy into that. That's that's a a, a critical race theory thing that I just doesn't don't think bears out. But the contours of their theology follow very closely in a certain sense other kinds of contextual theologies like liberal feminist theology, black theology, um, liberation theology in South America. They all follow this same kind of contour where the work of Christ is more about freeing the oppressed and and evening the scales and and sort of giving the oppressors their comeuppance than it is about sin and legal legal jurisdiction and forensics and the things that Western theology tends to focus on these these contextual theologies and Anabaptist theology is actually kind of a contextual theology it just happened you know, 400 years before we started talking about contextual theology as a discipline. So it's important because these theologies are not only coming back, but in many ways, they're infecting a lot of our conservative theological circles, right? You see it in the PCA. It's a huge problem in the PCA. You see it in the SBC. It's even starting to show up in places like the OPC and other conservative Presbyterian denominations. We're hearing rumblings of it. So this theology and this model of understanding the cross and what the cross is, is not going away. And in many senses, it's actually coming back around in a sort of a strong sense that we have to know what to do with it. It really is. There has been kind of a strange resurgence, which is why, again, I wanted to bring this up because I think sometimes it's somewhat subtle in language or in conversation. And I think part of that is because when we really take time to meditate and metabolize what it means that Jesus would go and suffer for sin, that that picture, the passion of Christ in in all of its glory is really an ugly concept. It is offensive. It's offensive because it says something about us and it's sometimes offensive just because there, there's no way around the fact that crucifixion was a violent death. Yeah. And so there's a lot of that in our modern sensibility that comes against us, it cuts against us and we just don't like it. What we'd like to do, I think is sanitize the whole process. And this may be unfair, but in some respect, this is what happens in this particular theory. Yeah. It's, it's not that there's a lack of respect for the death of Christ. It's just that it focuses on like relationship and we both agree like relationship is important and that there is a lot that Jesus, of course, does for us in reconciling and taking what is the identity of our relationship with God and pulling it now into consummate harmony because he has paid our debt through the cross. And yeah. then, of course, gloriously risen from the dead as our brothers, the first fruits. So that's all important. It's just that I worry that what this does is it tries to pull, extract out the violence, so to speak. It extracts out God as one who is who is the both, I think the more we talk about this, the more I like something you brought up several episodes ago is that I think really the litmus test of any kind of theory of atonement that we've spoken about so far, or it could even be con- anyone that could be conceived is, does it make God both just and justifier? I think right. that is the ultimate litmus test. And you're not going to find both of those things satisfied in this particular theory. Yeah. And, and I think they would actually push back and say he is, but that's because they have a different understanding of what justice is. Of justice, right. right. So in their model, justice is about the individual fulfilling their promise. And so God fulfills his promise, therefore justice has been satisfied. And so as long as one party is fulfilling their covenant promises, and in this sense, they would say 
Um, and, and it's weird hearing this kind of stuff from Anabaptists, but in one sense they would say, well, the Abrahamic promise is unconditional. And so the only party that has, has conditions to fulfill is God. So as long as he fulfills his covenant, his conditions, then justice has been served. And so that's, that's why it's important. And the question you have to ask is not, all right, well, is justice satisfied? But you have to ask, well, what does justice mean? And which vision of justice is closer to the biblical model? And obviously, our perspective would be that the justice, and I don't necessarily want to say retributive justice, because that's an element of it, but it certainly isn't the totality of it. But right. justice as uh, as um, satisfaction of divine wrath for violation and transgression of divine law being necessary, that's our understanding of justice. And I would argue the Bible's understanding of justice, right? right? The soul that sins shall die, right? God enacted a whole series of laws. And it's funny because as I'm, as I'm talking through this and processing this out loud, I'm seeing connections to Marcionism, right? We talked about that in our yeah, heresy sure. series, right? In the Old Testament, God was this mean God who demanded blood sacrifice. He was so violent and bloodthirsty. And he, you know, he, it was by law, not grace. Well, the Old Testament law was full of grace. Right. Right. Uh, so so I'm seeing shadows of Marcion and the Anabaptists, just to be transparent, they tend to emphasize the Gospels more than they emphasize Paul. And they almost almost exclude the Old Testament other than maybe perhaps backdrop for the New Testament. Um, I've actually known Anabaptists who don't even carry around a full Bible. All that they carry around on a regular basis, even when they go to church, is a New Testament. Um, I'm seeing shadows of prosperity gospel, right? Suddenly the atonement is no longer about satisfaction of divine wrath and re redemption from sin. It's about equaling the playing fields here on earth. It's about people having the resources they need. It's about the oppressed no longer being oppressed. Well, Joel Olstein just takes that a step further and takes it to the poor no longer being poor. Well, right. You know, that's kind of the same species of error if you really boil it down. So these kinds of errors, we've said this before, like heresy, and I'm not saying this is a heresy necessarily, but heresy, doctrinal error, it begets doctrinal error. Because if you get one part of your system wrong, it's going to spill over into other parts of your system. And then all of a sudden you're throwing out parts of the Bible. You're talking about salvation is about temporal things rather than eternal things. Um, but it's really an interesting, it's really an interesting system to kind of look at. And the mediatorial component of this particular theory, I think is valid in many ways. I'm not trying to throw that completely out. So when Paul and the New Testament writers, when they lay out their explanation for Jesus' death and resurrection for this new church in the first century, they're using covenantal language right. that would have been really familiar to the Jewish listeners. And I think there is something to be said for the key to understanding these Christ events, you know, all these writers are saying, was that the covenant between God and all people, and then of course, Jesus' role as the covenant mediator. What's a little bit odd is how I think there can sometimes be a confusion about where the scripture speaks about Jesus being a mediator and what he was mediating and why it was important that he was playing that role. So like, for instance, we find this just amazing language uh, throughout Hebrews speaking about what Jesus accomplished. And if you look at Hebrews 9.15, and this is sometimes used as a verse to really support this particular theory, it reads, therefore he, that is Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from 
the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Yeah. So there's that kind of leap over like you were speaking about before. And there we have, of course, the Bible explicitly referring to Christ as mediator. But what I think this miss is when we just kind of leverage this as an argument for we'll see here is what justice means. It's just Jesus as mediator, repairing relationship, fulfilling the promise. That's all that was accomplished there. We missed the last part of that verse that there were the reason for this, there were transgressions committed. So there was a literal law breaking that took place. And it wasn't just enough for Jesus to come and say, well, I made a promise to raise up a deliverer. But what are we being delivered from? What was right. the, the pain and the penalty of the transgression that necessitated a mediator? Because otherwise, it's, it's just one thing to say, well, God reconciled us. But from what and to what? That's right. really the question that has to be addressed. And I, I think that sometimes, like you said, there are shades of this in all kinds of current evangelistic language, especially when we tend to focus on salvation, either I would say like formally in order salutis or just informally as really saying, well, Christianity is relationship with God, not religion, relationship. Right. And I say that kind of a little bit sarcastically because yes, that is true, but that is much more the tail rather than the dog. Yeah. Yeah. So just, just because I think we should read the Bible here, um, I'm going to read, we've talked about this just in the justifier formula that we've been using and our sort of hermeneutic grid that we've been using is that when we talk about God being the just and the justifier, that our theory of the atonement fills the gap in that phrase and the, right? It's what, it's what reconciles God being just that is upholding the righteous requirements of his own law, which is according to his own nature and being the justifier, meaning that he's somehow redeeming us out of what that righteous requirement demands. So I'm going to start reading in Romans 3 21. It says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifest manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So all the Anabaptists are like, yeah, see, we, it's manifested apart from the law. But then it goes on and it says, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received right. by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So cut to all the Anabaptists going like, oh... And then <laughs> let's, let's just put the nail in the coffin here. Do then it. what becomes of our boasting? Is it excluded? By what kind of law? By the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. They start to get a little bit excited again. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So in this passage, some people argue, right, that the word law changes its meaning in the middle of the text. There's no reason to think that. He's talking about the fact that no one is justified by works of the Jewish law, that obedience right. to God's moral law or to the ceremonial law um, do not justify anyone. And even if it did... Uh, which it would have. Well, I couldn't just say that. If someone obeys the law, they don't need to be justified, right? He then says, this does not overthrow the law. Instead, this actually upholds and testifies to the law. So uh, on the face of it, 
some of these texts, and again, like sometimes all you need to do to refute someone's bad reading of the text is just read more of the text, right? When they pull out this thing in verse 21 that says, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, just keep reading and say, although the law and prophets bear witness to it, right? So it's it's not, it, this is another one of those theories that it actually sounds pretty good on paper, until you actually read the Bible and compare what it says and not so much what it says, but what it excludes, right? All the stuff about God being faithful to his promise and him being righteous because of his faithfulness to his promise, that's all good and well, that's true. And that, that's a bedrock of traditional reformed covenant theology that God is faithful to his promise, right? He made a promise to Adam and Eve in the garden that he would bring a seed, a serpent seed, crushing seed who would redeem all people that are his, right? That's true. But as soon as you compare it up to the scriptures and see what it's leaving out, they literally have to like jump over parts of the text in order to make their theology work because the language of blood sacrifice and propitiation and divine wrath and justice and substitution is everywhere in the New Testament. You can't right. get away from it. And I think that is the absolute major error of this particular theory that what it holds up is Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant where there is justice apart from the law. And that's my big problem is because what we see in Jesus Christ is a conquering through the law by yeah. way of God providing both the, the mediatorial office that was necessary and the one who could satisfy the law. So once again, it's not, it's not being thrown out. But the problem is the covenantal theory caricatures other atonement theories as axiomatic systems where justice requires blood and fire instead of mercy and compassion. Right. And my issue with that is, is it not gracious that Jesus would die a horrible death on our, on our part? Not just merciful, but isn't it also gracious? Because if we look at mercy in the, the most narrow way, which is appropriate, which is to say just that we're of course not getting what we ought to get in terms of punishment for our own transgressions. In addition to that, if we look at grace and understand it, it also in a kind of complementary narrow way that grace is the divine resource it is the favor of God, it is the energy of God, it is the gift of God toward us. Grace always must come at a cost. So like right. if, you're, if you're acting gracious toward me because you volunteered to come over to my house and help me rake leaves or do yard work, that, that resource that you provide to me, that graciousness that you show me comes at a cost, at least a very simple opportunity cost that right. you could be doing something else, anything else besides that on that particular day. And so when we look at something simple, as simple as John, you know, 316, for God so loved the world that he gave, that loving leads to giving and the giving is always a cost. And that giving is the resource of God. The blessing of God is grace. And so even in the death of Christ, this horrible death of Christ, we see grace. It is there. So I don't understand how we can separate grace from substitution or propitiation by looking at the scriptures any more than we can do so logically. And unfortunately, I think this theory misses on both accounts. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes when we try to simplify theological terms, we end up obscuring the reality, right? So R.C. Sproul kind of famously explains that, um, you know, mercy is not getting what you deserve, right? It's, it's not getting the punishment you deserve. But sure. in the act of mercy... Somebody doesn't get somebody gets what they don't deserve and somebody right. doesn't get what they do deserve. Right. So God doesn't give us the wrath that we deserve. But on the other side, even even I mean, the cross is obviously part of this. But even if you take the cross out of the equation, let's pretend 
that some of these theories are right. And God can just forgive sin without taking any act. And that's totally just to do. He still doesn't get what he deserves because when you've been sinned against, when you've been wronged, there is a, there is a, a moral debt that is accumulated, right? They owe you something. Now, it may be something that's intangible. Sometimes it's something tangible, right? If, if, you, um, if you lose control of your car and you drive into my house, then you owe me repairs on my house. That, that's just a moral and legal reality. Now, if I am merciful to you and I say, you know what? Your, your brakes went out, had nothing to do with you. Um, I'm going to go ahead and forego collecting the payment that you owe me for my house. Well, that's gracious and that's merciful. But as you're saying... It comes at a cost because now I have to pay for right. the cost of the repairs. And so God, although God is not subtracted from or added to by the creature, there's still a sense that we owe God a certain, we owe it to God to be punished. Like that's sort of a roundabout, sort of a, a twisted way to talk about it, like a backwards way to talk about it. God owes us punishment. And that means that we owe it to God to be punished by him. And so when he exercises mercy to him, it's, it's in a way that we do not fulfill our obligation to be punished by him. And so these models of the atonement that want to paint mercy as though all it is, is, um, an, a, a, a choice to not execute judgment. Well, that execute, not executing judgment comes at a certain cost for God. Now, again, that's anthropomorphized language, but he has to reconcile the cost that is owed to him somehow with the demands of justice. Otherwise, he is not just and the justifier. He's either just and he executes punishment as is, as is required by the righteous requirements of his law, or he's the justifier and he forgoes punishment. But unless we have that unifying understanding that somehow makes those two things compatible, then we have made God not to be just. So we really just have to be careful. And it's so easy to slip into this, right? Sometimes the language is so easy, right? If I say, you know, if I'm out doing street evangelism and someone says, well, tell me about why it is that God can forgive my sins. And I said, well, you know, in the garden, right after the first sin, the first thing that God did was he promised that he would deliver his people. And then Jesus came and, you know, he, he just, he showed us God's love and he did everything he needed to do. And because of that, he established this new covenant with us. And in that new covenant, he provides salvation for us. Well, how is that distinguishable from this new covenant atonement theory versus actual covenant atonement theory? If I haven't talked about the righteous requirements of the law, then it's not distinguishable. So we just have to be careful because I, that guy might walk away from that still feeling like he has nothing to do in terms of repentance. He doesn't have to repent to be forgiven because God's right. already done everything that's necessary. So it's it's important for us to be precise and careful. And that's why we're doing this series, right? Because all of our atonement models, our personal atonement theology, all of it is a mixture of all these, all these things. Because in a certain sense, the Bible presents all of these theories and it's in, in this perfect concert or harmony of all these theories that we find the actual atonement. Um, there is no one atonement, right? There's got to be a unifying theme through all these atonements and the penal substitution element is what makes all of these other other theories that have kernels of truth makes it so they're reconcilable. But it's important for us to know these these theologies so we don't end up sliding off the rails in a direction we don't want to. And we don't realize until we've already built a bunch of other theological commitments. And that's how people end up abandoning their theological positions is they don't understand the theological commitments 
commitments that they're going to be forced to make. And then once they've made those, it's really hard to pull those back. And sometimes it's easier to abandon the theology that you've already abandoned. And now you're just claiming that you've abandoned it. And that's really been our whole purpose in doing this nice, long, extended series, because the idea was to kind of find what is that keystone, like you said, that really unites all these theories. But at the same time, it's kind of an exercise in making sure that we don't have a tin ear toward theology, that as we discuss yeah. these things, we're, we are really able to critically evaluate them, to critique them in a way that's profitable and that also is peaceful so that we can have discussion, but be able to figure out and point out, well, here's the places where this falls short. And here are where there's some wonderful jewels that we can appreciate and really help us to round out. And again, just kind of, I would say, gather more appreciation for what Christ has done on the cross. It doesn't just become kind of part and parcel of some kind of rote theology that we yeah. graduate on from as mature Christians, but that every day, as Luther would always say, that we are preaching the gospel to ourselves. And part of that is I think being forced into trying to understand and articulate what does the atonement mean? This for me is a bit like, I do appreciate that several artists have taken, you know, kind of classic, let's say hymns, or this often happens at Christmas, of course, kind of classic uh, Christmas hymns. And what they do is they take the same lyrics, but they set them to a different melody. And what that often does for me is all those times I would sing those songs on autopilot because the melody gets changed. It forces me to re-engage yeah. with the lyrics again. And this is kind of a process of re-engaging again with the atonement. Everything that we thought we knew we understood or could really speak clearly about. This is, I think, being challenged by helping us to understand and to take like a really put a keen eye on what is being said here and how, again, we can really talk about this as brothers and sisters yeah. and then hopefully explain it to people that are not yet believers, because it, this can be kind of a daunting thing to explain, but really we should be trying to pare down our language, yeah. get specific and simple so that we can really promulgate the gospel in every place that we find ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's probably a good, a good place to wrap up. Jesse, I feel like we need some spiritual conferencing theme music. We do for like a transition, like some yeah. kind of like sweet, yeah, some sweet jam some to us into spiritual. Oh, some chimes. <laughs> I yeah. was thinking like some kind of like musical interlude, but. I don't know. Just Maybe think... like we should get some dude to play the xylophone or something. Oh, I thought you were talking about like the, the doorbell, like who's at the door? Ding Spiritual dong. conferencing. No. no, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. You want to kick us off yeah. this week? So I mentioned this Van Maastricht book that I'm reading and. There's not, uh, there's some good theology, some good um, systematic theology out there that's devotional in tone. But this, as I mentioned, is so eminently practical that it's really just been kind of rocking my face because I think sometimes we can get in this mode where theology becomes this sort of um, erudite intellectual pursuit. And um, Maastricht actually defines theology as. Um, the the art well he doesn't say the art it's an art a science and a practical discipline i mean he's really rooted in aristotle here but he defines it as um living for god through christ that's what theology is and so i just want to read a little bit um this this just floored me um and this is on page 108 and 109 of volume 1 it's it's kind of long but i think it's worth it he says the second use of theology is examination of theology he says, therefore, the second use is that we should seriously examine here both our theology and our theologians. We should examine our theology indeed, or our religion, as to whether it is, first, the doctrine that originates from and is revealed by God, second, makes for Christian practice, 
Third, directs our life in no other way than toward God, that is, to accomplishment of the glory of God in our eternal salvation. And fourth, whether it lays the foundation of our whole life in Christ alone. These are the principal marks of genuine theology together with those that we enumerated above. Of theologians, but let us also examine theologians and Christians, and let every person examine himself to determine whether he is first taught not only by, uh, not by men only or by books, but rather by God. Second, taught not for disputing or discoursing, but for living. Third, for living not for himself, the world, or anything else, but for God. Fourth, and that through Christ, that is, by the power of Christ alone. These are the chief evidences springing from our definition of theology of an authentic theologian or Christian. For the nature of a matter and its innate character are not more perfectly perceived from any other source than from its careful definition. And so what he's saying there at the end is that the purpose of theology is going to be defined by your uh, by how you define theology itself. So if you define theology as the science of knowing the science of analyzing um, revealed theology or revealed natural revelation or, or special revelation. That's going to shape how you understand theology to function and what you, what you shape its purpose for. But what, what Maastricht does, and this is something that's, that, like I said, I've just been prayerfully considering this. He defines theology as living for God through Christ. And so as he goes through his pursuit of systematic theology, He's got an eye towards how does this actually enable me to live for God through Christ? And I, I guess it's been convicting for me because I don't always do that, right? I don't always think in those categories. And I want to challenge our listeners that we start to think in those categories, right? It's right. great. It's good and well to have academic discussions about theology. But if those academic discussions don't actually translate to a more righteous way of life, a more full dependence on, on the Holy Spirit, a truer trust and faith in, in Jesus Christ and his atoning work, then what good is it, right? What, why mm -hmm. not study something that makes you more money if, if your theology is not going to accomplish the goal of enabling you to live for God in Christ, then, then spend your time on something else more temporally productive. Right on. That's, That's all I got. That's it. <laughs> that was like a whole sermon right there. Sorry. That was beautiful. No, that was beautiful. What do you got? I was about to give you an amen from the back pew on that. <laughs> I think uh, recently God has really been leading me to consider sin or some sins a little bit differently. And I'm just going to be honest that this is idea that I haven't really entirely fleshed out. So you can just call me on, you know, straight up heresy if this is what's happening here. And I take this from the context of Samuel's address really to Israel when he's wrapping up his ministry and Saul's becoming king. And what was really impressed upon me in that particular discourse is Samuel's very honest with the people. And he basically says, this is my paraphrase translation, like the Jesse translation is, listen, you guys said you wanted a king that made God very upset with you because he, he is the king. And the people in the course of hearing this are like, dang, you are right. We really jacked that up. Um, we're afraid of the Lord. Like we, we, judgment should be upon us for that. And what Samuel says on behalf of God or through God is yet basically yes. And he doesn't say like, okay, it's all right go ahead. No worries. He says, yes, you did offend the Lord. Yes, you transgressed and he still loves you and he's going to yeah. take care of you. So be careful to follow closely after him. And so where this got me thinking about sin is that I think sometimes in my own life and perhaps just in the general evangelical culture, we even, even Calvinists, 
we kind of say, well, we understand that we are responsible for our sins. We also understand God's superintending will. But God allows some sins. Perhaps like in this situation, he allowed the people of Israel to seek after a king. And I'm wondering if not what God sometimes does is he actually superintends sins into our life of a lesser nature so that we might follow more closely after him and that he would save us from larger sins, so to speak. Yeah. And I wonder if what we have here is, is God superintending the sin on behalf of the people, seeking after a king so that they can see, because none of the kingships go well, honestly, basically after the second one. So we haven't, even the first one wasn't that great in some respects. And so what we have here is this really amazing juxtaposition that without having the king, without that superintending sin in the lives of the Israelites, that there would be a lesser understanding of God as their true king. And I wonder if he does not do that in our own lives with things like pride and other stuff, where he superintends those sins so as to save us from greater sins. And so I'm, I'm really trying to process that, but I am sensing that that is what often has God has done to me, and it's actually a very gracious thing. Yeah. Yeah, I can't find it right off the top of my head, but the Westminster Confession basically says the same thing. So you're definitely oh, not a heretic. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, one of the reasons, it, it talks about the the various reasons why God may allow his saints to uh, persist in sin or to, to fall to sin. And one of them is basically to uh, further their dependence on him. So I don't think it's too far of a stretch to say that God does at times allow us to fall into a less grave or less heinous sin um, or a less temporally damaging sin in order to transform us and protect us in a way that prevents us or protects us from committing more heinous sins uh, at a later date. So I I think that's solid. And and see, that's like the line though, that I'm, I'm trying to process because I was trying to be like very specific in the language. Like, so I think there are times where we sense like there is an allowance. I'm wondering if sometimes God even goes beyond that though. And it's almost as if I'm not saying that he causes us to sin, of course, because the Bible is very explicit that he does not. But this superintending will of God that, again, I, all I can think of is allows because we, we bear some of that responsibility, like yeah. you're saying. But it's almost, you know what I'm saying? Like almost a stronger yeah. um, word than that. Because it does, I think so many times we just think, well, we're passive. Like, oh, it's too bad. Like I fell into this sin again. Maybe God wants to teach me something. And as, as if that's like a crutch to feel better about the fact that we're in some kind of sin that, you know, boggles us down or shackles us, but that, that God is actually using that actively, not passively, but actively to work on us. Yeah. And the reform tradition has used the language of permission or sort of used the, the sense that God, this is a sort of contradiction of terms, but God acts passively in certain things. Yes. So, so God, when we say God allows, it's not like it happens apart from his jurisdiction or apart from his decree or apart from his providence. And so God doesn't cause us to sin in, in, in that he doesn't immediately act upon our will to compel us to sin. But he has um, he has ordained and decreed all whatsoever comes to pass. And, right. and it goes to reason that since God is a God of order, um, that whatever he's decreed, serves to further his ultimate aim, his ultimate goal, which we know for God's people is for their sanctification in holiness and for their setting apart, uh, being set apart and eventually presented blameless before Christ, before the Lord. So in a, in a paradoxical sense, our sin is subservient to our own sanctification. 
Right, right? exactly. And, that's and what that's, I'm driving at. That's where I think the, the profound mystery comes in, right? Because we shouldn't sin that grace may abound, right? right? May it never be, God forbid, however you translate that. So we shouldn't say like, well, I'm just going to sin because that, that's how I get sanctified. Right. That's actually like the Tullian Tavidian school of sanctification. But like that doesn't change the fact that if I wake up and I am having having a super spiritual day and out of all the best motives, I spend time in the word and I spend time praying like that is subservient to my sanctification. But this is the this is the beauty and the mystery of serving a sovereign God is that if I get up in the morning and I'm having a terrible morning and I'm super mad. And so I swear at the dog and I go smash a bunch of dishes and I I call my boss and I cuss him out at three in the morning and then I refuse to read my Bible. If I'm of the elect, then those things also are subservient to my sanctification. Exactly. And it may be that the next day I realize how terrible that was. And I, and that serves to teach me a valuable lesson about holding my tongue and bridling my anger and the importance of restraint and caution. Like there are things that we learn, but it's not as though God and we, we have to say God is not active in my um, my good works in the same sense that he's active in my wicked works, but he is not act, not inactive in either. Does that make sense? Right. Yes, exactly. That's exactly what I'm driving at. It's that I almost think that sometimes the, that passage gets kind of, again, spoken of as if God is like passive in the lower case P sense in that isn't it unfortunate that God allowed or would be willing to allow, like, isn't God so nice that he still said, yeah, you can have a king, even though you really offended me. Right. But I, I'm reading that now and saying, well, here's God like actively ordaining this so that they might be freed from uh, a more serious type of sin. And that right. we, at, for the Israel's posterity, might be able to see this and also be changed by it and move forward with our own sanctification. Yeah. So I'm, I'm totally down. It's just a powerful thing. I think that maybe that mystery was like really impacted me as I kind of turned that around in my mind. So that's really where my conferencing is coming from this week. Yeah. And of course, the supreme example of that is the centurion at the cross. Yes. Right? This man may not have been the one that actually nailed the Lord to the cross, but he certainly was a participant in the murder of Jesus Christ. And then at the very moment of that murder being consummated, he turns to faith. And so his supreme act of wickedness was directly subservient to his salvation and sanctification. Right. So, so that's a, I mean, that's a microcosm of what happens in our life every day. And just like we have to say that the crucifixion happened according to God's definite pre preordained plan, the salvation of that centurion did too. And it wouldn't have happened the same way had God ordained it him not to be involved in the crucifixion. It was the way and the manner in which he watched Jesus die that convinced him of his need for salvation and the identity of Christ. So I think you're spot on. I think you're absolutely right. Right. I think that's the only way we can look at those kind of passages, including the one I was talking about and say, and understand logically why, for instance, Samuel says, yes, and yes, yeah. and yes, you sinned. Yes. God ordained this. Yes. He loves you. Yeah. So I, I'm with you like that. What, what amazing hope what amazing kindness, again, talking about our conversation, what amazing grace that comes at the cost of God, um, so to speak. Like, it's just, what a, the gospel just never gets old. It's the yeah. only thing that's big enough that no matter how old we get, it just continues to fill me with wonder. So yeah. I love this, like, time of ending with spiritual conferencing because I always get, like, pumped up. Again, <laughs> I, I don't know. Like, I want to go, like, do push-ups or go for a run or something. I would like you to make a video of you doing push-ups and post it on the website. <laughs> Can you do that? They would be ugly. Yeah. I, see, I do. I admire the people that like can go down and do a push up, and they look pretty. 
I look like a wet noodle. Like yeah. even on my first one trying to do it well. You've seen me do push-ups. Nice. I have seen pretty. you do push-ups and it isn't pretty. Yeah, it's not pretty. No. Well, Jesse, I think that's a good note to end on. <laughs> Until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Uh, what if I'm fine?